Hey church, good morning. Welcome, glad to see you. It's a beautiful day. This is the day the Lord has made. We're rejoicing and glad. Glad you've joined us and welcome online as well to all of you joining us from wherever you are today. We are continuing on the subject of the Sabbath. Let me just remind you that the minute that Jesus stepped into his public ministry, he, t- he staked claims on the Sabbath. See, the, the Sabbath had been hijacked hijacked by legalists, the religious leaders of the day who were more interested in their power and control, using the law to manipulate people. And Jesus comes along and he says, no, no, you've been mistreating the Sabbath and watch what I'm going to do to it. So immediately he walks walks into history and he starts healing people. On the Sabbath, he cast out demons. That's in Mark 1. He heals scoliosis in Luke 13. He shrinks peripheral edema, unusual swelling, Luke 14. Cures blindness, John 9. Feeds the hungry, Mark 2. Unlocks paralysis of a hand in Matthew 12. Uh, Lowers a high fever in Mark chapter 1. And And so throughout the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus taking a hold, staking claim, not only as the Lord of the Sabbath, but to re emphasize the meaning and the significance and the intent of the Sabbath day. And so I want us to learn from him today and embrace the opportunity to authentically practice the Sabbath day. The opening passages of Mark, here's what Jesus does. He casts, he casts out a demon from a church usher, which is required from time to time. Knocks the fever out of Peter, Peter's mother-in-law. You may remember that story. And he holds this mass walk-in clinic. This is, this is the beginning of Mark's gospel. So it's not a coincidence that Jesus uses the Sabbath for miracles and healing and for helping, helping people. Then in chapter 2, uh, it closes with Jesus setting everybody straight on the meaning of the Sabbath. He's pushing back to people, criticizing him for activities on the Sabbath 
and says, well, it may be against the law to harvest grain on the Sabbath, but it's never wrong to feed the hungry on the Sabbath. So the laws against working on the Sabbath were made ultimately to benefit people, not to hinder people, not to repress people, but to set them free and to give them help. Then in Mark chapter 3, this is where we pick up the story, and this is where our text is found today. The first six verses of Mark's gospel, chapter 3. Our custom, of course, is to stand to hear God's word, so as you're able, I invite you to do that. Now, why do we stand for the reading of the scripture? Let me just remind you that we do this out of respect for the scripture to honor the authority, the loving authority that the scripture has in our lives. And, and I know that it's... it's um, maybe disruptive for some. You know, I just ask you to stand. You go, come on, I just got comfortable. Why are you making me stand? But listen, if, you're, if your favorite high school team had just won a state championship and they came back to your gym for a celebration rally and you were sitting there in the gymnasium waiting for your team to come in and the, the team walks into the gym, what are you going to do? I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to stand and you're going to cheer. On top of that, you're going to cheer loudly because... This team of students have just made us all proud and made us all happy, and we're excited about celebrating the state championship. And we stand for the word of God because we are about to hear the words of God. And this is worth celebrating, and we stand to express honor. So that's the idea. So here's verse 1. Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. And since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. So Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everybody. Now, that's pretty bold, wasn't it? I mean, if we knew someone with a physical malady in the room right now, we said, why don't you just come to the front? In fact, come up on the platform and stand here in front of everybody. Show them your deformity. That's, that's pretty poignant. And then he turned to his critics and asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life or to destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. He looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. There's a lot we could learn about Jesus being saddened by the hardness of people's hearts. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand Now, this is a withered hand, so it's all contracted like this. He hasn't used it for probably a long time. And so he holds it out. And then in four words, and it was restored. (laughs) So it's a a miracle, physical healing, happened in the presence of those witnesses that day, including the Pharisees. Their response, at once, the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. Jesus. So we have folks who have misplaced the Sabbath, its meaning and intent, and Jesus now restaking claim on this same Sabbath. May we hear Jesus and receive from him his wisdom today. You may be seated. Thank you so much. So throughout history, we know that Jesus consistently brings us to the heart of the law. For example, the law says, do not kill. Thou shalt not kill. Jesus comes along and he says, yeah, I know the law says don't kill, but what what it really means is don't get angry enough to feel murder toward another person. So it's not just don't do not kill, it's don't get angry with people. 
What? Yeah, that's the real intent of it. Okay. The, the law says do not commit adultery. And depending on what person you ask, you go, well, I haven't done so well with that or so far so good. But Jesus comes along and he says, well, you know, it says don't commit adultery, but the, really the meaning there, the intent there is don't look at another person with that thought. Oh, so adultery, the, the commandment on adultery can be violated with a bad thought? Yeah, that's the intent of it. Uh-oh, now, now see, we're all in trouble. So, so the, the, the commandment also says don't covet your neighbor's stuff, your neighbor's possessions. And we say, well, you know, I do fairly well with that. You know, I'm, most days I'm good to go. Jesus comes along. A rich young ruler approaches him one day and says, what, what is it going to take for me to get right with God? And Jesus, knowing that this young man highly valued his physical possessions and found status in his assets that way, Jesus says to this young guy, listen, for you, in order to get right with God, I know that the commandment is don't envy your neighbor's possessions, but in your case, you need to take all of your possessions and sell them, give the money to the poor, and then come and follow me. Well, now that, you know, the bar gets raised and the intent of the law. So Jesus doesn't throw out the law. He fulfills the law. He is a compass now that points us to the original intent behind the law. So if do not kill actually means don't get angry, what then does the command remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? What is the intent behind that? It's a great question, isn't it? And I'm going to give you the answer right now. I'll put it on the screen for you. The intent of the commandment to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, is rest. Rest is what is important. That's the meaning of the command, remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. This is the, the motivation behind the commandment, remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. It is the intent, the design, the purpose of the command, remember the Sabbath day. The intent of Sabbath is to rest. In fact, Sabbath literally means to stop. Stop what you're doing and rest. People don't, therefore, guard the Sabbath or they don't protect the Sabbath because they, 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 they acknowledge the Sabbath or, they, or they, uh, they adhere to the Sabbath in some kind of ritualistic, legalistic way. That's not what's happening. So people don't guard it. They don't protect it. They don't save the Sabbath. As it turns out, the Sabbath saves us and guards us and protects us. So the meaning of rest to a man who cannot walk, what's a Sabbath for a guy who can't walk? A Sabbath for him is get up and walk. Uh, the Sabbath meaning to a person who is hungry and starving is to eat. And be satisfied. That's the Sabbath. Peter's mother-in-law, you may remember this story, had a high fever and Jesus went to the home there and healed his mother-in-law. And the Bible says she immediately got up. So the whole point wasn't just to heal her fever, but for her to get up and start practicing her gift of hospitality and taking care of her son-in-law's special friend, Jesus. So if you sit inside at a desk all week, then rest for you, Sabbath for you, would be to get outside and move around. 
Do some exercise. If you perform manual labor all week, then rest for you would be to lie down and take a nap. Stop and rest. Sabbath. Remember the first day of summer school? Uh, I'm sorry, summer vacation when you were in grade school? The first day of summer vacation, do you remember that day? Listen, this is the best definition of Sabbath for me. First day of summer vacation. I remember fourth grade, and we were coming to the end of the year. Now, fourth grade is about 10 years old. Now, think about this. School lasted for nine months, and when you're only 10 years old, nine months is a big chunk of your life. Compared to my age now, I did the math on this, it's like, it's like six years worth of school year. That's why it seemed like it felt like forever, right? Can I get a witness? Going to school when you're a kid just felt like my whole life is being wasted here. <laughs> At least that was my attitude. It's not a good attitude. It was just mine. In fact, I remember my first day of school. I can describe for you the, the, the room, my first day of kindergarten, the first day. I can, I can describe my teacher to you, what she was wearing. I can remember the, the type of desks we were sitting, sitting in. And I remember the first conscious thought on the first day of the first 10 minutes of kindergarten in my life. And my thought was, I got to get out of here. This is not where I need to be. My goal is to get out. So fourth grade, I mean, it was just went on and on. I was so looking forward to the end of school. Two weeks before the end of school, our teacher had given us an assignment. You have to complete a project. I do not recall what what the project was about. All I remember was I didn't do it because I figured there's only two weeks left, you know, forget the project. And on the last day of school, our teacher stood up and announced, if you have not turned in your project, you know, you four or five knuckleheads, then you will not be advanced to fifth grade. You won't get passed into fifth grade until you turn in the report, project. Okay, so I have to go home, tell my mother about this project. Could you help me with this project? So I had to hear it from my mom. And then we got this project done the next day. Delivered the project, okay, you're passed through to fifth grade. (laughs) This is Sabbath. This is Sabbath. My favorite rock and roll song of all times, and there isn't a close second. In fact, if you ask me, what are your top three rock and roll tunes? I'd say, well, I don't know, but I got got my top. This, This is my favorite rock and roll song of all time, and it's Alice Cooper's School's Out. And... I love that song. In fact, I would almost like to play it right now, but I, it just, it's not, not appropriate. You would all, people would be dancing in the aisles. School's out for summer. School's out forever. That's as good a song as you can get right there. That is fantastic. So that's, that's Sabbath to me. First day of summer vacation. It is freedom. It is wonderful. It is rest from all this stuff. So, uh, so, so what, we find, what we find in Jesus is, is this admonition to remember the need that we all have for this rest. Not just when you're 10 years old, trying to get out of fourth grade, but rest from being hurt. Rest from our worries. Rest from the fast-paced nature of our world. You and I were designed to get away. 
God wired us this way. God designed us. He created us. He purposefully wired us to need to benefit from one day of rest every seven days. We have a need for it. And it's rest from pressure points. It's rest from stress points, information overload, all that stuff. So we live in this 24-7 world now, and Jesus admonishes us. Look at it on the screen, Matthew 11. Here's what Jesus says. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Rest for your souls. Let me give you just a handful of examples where we need rest today. It's on your outline. Very quickly. Number one, rest from being hurt. Now, everyone picks up a collection of hurts as the years go by. We've all been hurt. We've all been disappointed. We've all had losses. We've all been offended. We've all been betrayed and, and hurt in some capacity. All of us hurt each other. We've all been hurt. I think about a child and his friend who find the father's pistol, and they begin to play with it. The teacher driving home gets distracted while reaching for her purse, and she doesn't see the young woman who's jogging. The pallet falls off the truck into the path of a teenage driver. A lump is found in the breast or the groin or the neck. The pa- parents tell the children one Saturday morning, it's, uh, it's not your fault. Mommy and, mommy and daddy will always love you, but just not enough to stay married. It takes time in our physical bodies, as we know, when we get injured or damaged, it takes time to heal. And likewise, from our spiritual and emotional injuries, it takes time to heal. Look at this statement. It's a simple statement. Rest gives our souls the time they need to heal. Rest gives our souls the time they need to heal. Rest from being hurt. Second, rest from heavy labors. Now, We can identify with this. Manual labor has its own reminder to stop. I mean, there are just so many bricks that you can lift until your body says, (laughs) we're not lifting any more bricks. We're going to have to rest. have to recover. But uh, unfortunately, other types of labor labor may not remind us of the need to lay down our burdens. So those of us who have to answer emails all day long or manage Zoom calls or work with customers and on and on the list goes of pressure points and stress points. So Jesus calls us not only from our physical burdens, but from all of the trials that are associated with our labors. Here's the statement. Put it on the screen. If we are to treat our bodies as temples, we must allow time for physical, mental, and spiritual recovery from the labors of the week. So from our hurts and rest from our labors. Here's number three. Rest from the pace of the world. Now, you've probably uh, seen a time-lapse Uh, where a person has videotaped from some height, some elevation, uh, people moving around about in a cityscape, up and down the the sidewalks and cars moving, maybe on escalators, and they speed up the the time lapse, and so people are scurrying about. They they look like little ants, you know, just running around like this. It's interesting, in 1990, there was a study that was done for the British Council by Dr. Richard Wiseman, and he recorded how fast people walked in cities, major cities of the world, New York, Tokyo, so forth. And universally, and perhaps not surprisingly, he discovered that the faster-paced cities 
universally had higher instances of coronary artery disease. Now, this isn't intuitive, so you have to listen and let this soak in. The faster people were walking in the streets of these major cities, the higher the likelihood was of coronary artery disease. So apparently, the faster you walk, the more disease you're susceptible to. It's all about pace, the pace of life. And a a recent redo, listen to this, of Wiseman's study found that the speed of walking from 30 years ago has now increased another 10%. So people now are walking faster, even faster than they were 30 years ago. And apparently has an equal and opposite reaction. Fast living apparently causes long-term problems. So changing the pace is, a, is, while a great challenge, an important discipline. For example, fast living includes fast food, fast eating. Eating may ultimately be slowing us down. Americans spend less than 80 minutes per day eating meals. Less than 80 minutes per day eating meals. Consequences, we're getting fat. Just look around. Nearly 35% of our population has a body mass index, BMI, over 30. A BMI of more than 25 is considered overweight, and one of more than 30 is considered obese. And 35% of Americans right now are considered obese because of their BMI. Contrast that with France. The French spend more than two hours a day eating their meals. Compare that to 80, 80 minutes for Americans, two hours, 120 minutes for the French. And only 10% of people living in France have a BMI over 30, compared to 30% in America. In 1972, Americans spent $3 billion a year on fast food. 1972, $3 billion. The number today is $130 billion on fast food. Talking about pace. Taking time to sit down and eat apparently is a sacred thing, is a biblical business. When Beth and I were raising our boys, Beth was insistent that every time it was possible, we would always sit down as a family and have a meal together. It was was a value for her, and I'm glad it was. And it's a a lost art in our culture today. People are running, meeting each other on the road. One kid's got and the other kid, and it's just really hard. But it's a value that apparently the Bible recommends. For example, Abraham fed the angels under the oaks of Mamre. Beautiful story in the Old Testament. Jesus taught over meals in the homes of his friends. We find that. The book of John, for example, uh, there, there is a meal that Jesus was invited to, and he began to teach at that meal. And the meal goes on for five chapters of the book of John, the Gospel of John. Now think about that. That's a long meal. Nearly one quarter of the Gospel of John occurred at one dinner where Jesus was teaching. Now, the question begged to be asked is, I wonder what would happen if they had chosen fast food that night and have the gospel. So eating fast food, we get calories in our bodies fast, but by taking the time to cook and dine, we nourish our souls. Let me put this statement on the screen. Fast-paced lives leave less time for activities that actually build family and friendships. I've learned the most about this particular 
practice from our good friends in Kazakhstan, Central Asia, because the Kazakhs have this beautiful cultural tradition of long and festive meals. And meals in Kazakhstan last hours and hours. And if, if they have guests in the house, it can be an all-day affair. And it's a remarkable part of their culture. So here's number four. Rest from the speed of change. From the speed of change. We have a number of uh, computer geeks on our staff here at Union Chapel. And um, I carry an iPad around. And recently I had an, uh, one of my apps had a prompt that appeared on it. And, I, for, and it bothers me every time I open it. And I see that prompt on my app. It distracts me. I don't like it. And I spent days trying to get that prompt off my app. And I couldn't do it. And so I show up at staff meeting the following week. And I said, I got this prompt on my app. The first arm that reached for my iPad, I handed it to him. And 3.5 seconds later, the prompt was gone off the app. And then you get that look. You know that look? You know, and the nonverbal is, I don't even know why they give people like you one of those iPads. I don't know what the heck you're doing. I was sitting, uh, getting ready to listen to a sporting event on my radio. I, have a, I still have a radio. I know. And my eight-year-old grandson, Noah, jumped up on my lap, and he looked at the radio, and he said, what is that? And I said, it's a radio. And then he looked at me, and he said, what does it do? Hmm. You see, you see these, uh, these uh, young emergents walking around in really skinny jeans and plaid, plaid shirts. They're walking around now. And, you know, God bless you for, for finding digital technology so intuitive. You know, there, there are humans among us now who have never lived in a world without a smartphone. And it's, and it's just, it's so easy for them. I was sitting, sitting with my grandson uh, not long after that with my iPad and I was doing some email and he kept reaching over and touching my iPad and taking me to another page and going off in different directions and I, I said, I'm trying to read my email and I pushed his hand away and then, he, you know, he got distracted and he just started touching it again. I wasn't, I didn't mind that he touched it. I, I was afraid he was going to do something that I couldn't recover from, you know, that he would take me somewhere on my iPad that I, I would be lost in forever. And, I, and I, so I pushed his hand away again. I, I looked at him and I said, stop touching my iPad, just like that. And he looked at me and he goes, what is the matter with you? He said, that's what you do with iPads. You touch them. Okay, okay. But now what, what we're beginning to see is, is the, uh, the emergent generation now is getting a little panicky too because progress in digital technology is advancing so quickly, it's changing so fast that, that now these smarty pantses who are in their 20s and 30s can't keep up either. And I'm enjoying it. You know, back in my day, I used to make fun of my parents because they couldn't program their VCR to, you know, tape Andy Griffith at 11 o'clock on, on Monday morning. Now I'm getting mocked because I can't work an app on my iPad but these uh, smarty pants now who are 20 in, in their early 30s, they're starting to panic because they can't manage their technology. And now they have to call on, you know, five-year-olds and six-year-olds to help them sort it out. And it's kind of fun to watch. We used to say back in the day, the letter's in the mail. You know, what a quaint saying. <laughs> How archaic that is. 
So, but the onset of digital technology and communication, the average response time for an email now is 90 minutes. The average response time for a text or an Instagram, something like that, is 90 seconds. So today, more than 90% of Americans keep their mobile phone within physical reach 24-7. Nine out of 10 people are never out of literal physical reach of their phone. And um, you've heard me talk about this some, and I won't linger, but it's not a good thing. And we, and we need a break from the technology and the pace that it creates. And um, when, I, when I spent an entire message on this recently, it, it made people panic. Folks were having panic attacks right, right in the room. There were people who literally got up and walked out. And the reason they got worked up, because I suggested that they set their device down for a day or two days or three days, or maybe they need to leave it alone for a week, and some of you maybe for a month, hyperventilation. And the reason for that is because people are addicted to these machines. There's a physiological, chemical addiction just like any addiction to anything that occurs with these machines. And that's not, that's not speculation. That's science. Even the folks who build these machines will tell you, we build them to make them addictive so more people will buy our products. And so there's a conspiracy to cause us to be absolutely dependent on these things. And I'm suggesting that we need to also develop a rhythm that keeps, gives us rest from the changes that are happening. Here's number five, rest from the job. Some of you are going, thank God he's off that subject. Yeah, I was starting to, starting to get sweaty. My parents' generation tended to have long-term careers. My generation is similar, but the younger you are, the more uncertain uh, your vocational and career path will be. Um, back in my parents' day, a guy would start to work, a woman would start to work for a company, they'd work for that company their whole lives, go to the same school, finish their professions, would linger for an entire lifetime. And according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the average young married couple in 1969 worked 56 hours a week. 30 years later, this number had risen to 67 hours, so from 56 to 67, 11 hours more in a week, and it continues to accelerate and the stats hold for couples with and without children. And what's happening is that we are working more and more and more, more hours, and we have less job certainty. So there's more uncertainty and yet more demands on the time spent. One of the reasons for this is because of the technology. And the technology, on the face of it, promises more efficiency and you have to less, spend less time working, but just the opposite's true. Technology allows you, you to multitask now, and you, so you can do more things at the same time, and so what it does is compound the pressure and compound the duration of the amount of time that people are working. And as technology advances, this is going to only increase and, be, and, and get exacerbated that you're going to spend more time working <laughs> with less certainty, longer duration of work, with less certainty in those jobs. And we need rest. Let me make this statement, see if you agree with it. Resting is even more necessary in uncertain times. Do you agree with that? Would you, would you suggest that we're living in uncertain times right now? I would describe these as uncertain times. In every way imaginable, uncertain. It helps us remember 
that God is in control and that our identity is not dependent on the work we do. That's why we need rest from the job. Well, here's the last thought. That is rest from information. This is kind of doubling back. Peter Drucker uh, was best known for his work on management philosophy. He was kind of the guru and still is in a lot of ways. He argued that executives who are managing large corporations and companies, that they, they need large quantities of uninterrupted time to make executive decisions. You probably use that phrase. I had to make an executive decision. Uh, effective leaders carve out these blocks of time, as Drucker reported, to synthesize information, weigh the risks, plan strategies. And that's not, that's not complicated, is it? I mean, that's not rocket science. I mean, it makes sense that the more complex the challenges and decisions you need to make, the more time you need to sort those out. Um, anthropologists, curiously enough, have also reported from their studies of ancient civilizations, watch this, that as they've studied ancient civilizations, they have come to the conclusion that uninterrupted time, carving out enough time to think about what that civilization they want, want it to be and how they want it to look, it was actually the key to making civilization possible. To interpret that, to say it another way, that leisure time has been the key to the formation of civilizations throughout human history. That's interesting, isn't it? So think about it. I don't know anyone who's not required to make executive decisions all the time. I mean, all of our lives are complicated. And so we're making executive complex choices on a daily basis. I mean, running a home is a complex proposition. Raising kids, you could argue that's the most complex challenge in all of life. And folks have to do that every day. Uh, figuring out all, all the aspects of life requires executive skills. So uninterrupted time allows us to separate what's important from what's merely urgent. Now, what happens to most of us is that we, we spin in place. And all we do is respond to the things that are, that are making the most noise, the most urgent matters. And we are not disciplined enough to take a Sabbath and rest long enough, quiet enough, in an uninterrupted fashion so that we can actually process what's important versus what's urgent so that major decisions, executive decisions, can be made about life and the important matters of our life. Now, I'm not, I'm not very good at some of the points I've made today. You know, I'm, I'm not great practicing what I'm preaching today. I need to do better with this whole Sabbath thing. But this point I'm making right now, rest from information and the pressure of that, I'm an expert at this. I'm really good at this. I have a PhD in carving out uninterrupted, quiet space. I really do this well. And my wife will attest to it. She, she's the one who suffered the most because of it. Because she, she, likes, she likes noise. She likes conversation. She likes interaction. And for me, I need just the opposite. And I, I deal with lots of complex questions on a regular basis. And I have to have time, uninterrupted time. And I'm good at resting from information. There are times when I don't know where my phone is. And I don't panic. The, 
there, there are days when my computer doesn't come on. <laughs> I know this is shocking. I'm sorry to shock you. So in the midst of this, we need to let the dust settle so that we can see and think and, cl- and understand clearly our life and family. There is at the same time this tsunami of information. It's just, a, just a, an onslaught, a surge, just this tidal wave of information that's just almost impossible to comprehend. It just hits us constantly. Overall, the United States Internet user spends an average of 13 hours online each week, 13 hours, browsing 99 domains and 3,123 pages of Internet space. The time spent on an individual website, however, is just 56 seconds. So we spend, spend our time on 3,100 pages plus every, <laughs> every week, but we're only there for less than a minute. On each one. There was a commercial five or six years ago, and it was a man late at night, and he's in front of a computer screen, and the light of the screen is, is fl- sp- splashing on his face, and he's sitting there, and he makes one final click. You hear the click, and he s- pushes away from the computer, and he goes, I did it. And the wife comes by, and says, you did what? He said, I finished it. She said, you finished what? She said, he said, I finished the entire internet. I have now looked at everything available on the whole internet. And of course, it's humorous. It's, it's hilarious. Five or six years ago, it, you know, it, it occurred to someone that you could see everything that's on, the, but you can't possibly consume everything that's out there, and it just deluges us, and it's, and it's so hit and miss. You know, you can, you, can go, you, you can go for four or five different little stories on YouTube or some other platform, and it's just frivolous and stupid and, you know, human beings acting crazy and and stunts and all kinds of nonsense. And then suddenly you get, oh, and this, and this person's been murdered. Or this, or this baby's starving. Or this part of the world is experiencing famine. And thousands of people are at risk. And the problem with all the information is you can't differentiate. It just comes in such waves that people are losing their sensitivity to what's really important and what's really valuable and how we should be investing in our lives and the things we should really care about. And so we need rest. We need rest from the information. Recently, I, I reported to us that Christian young people, young millennials and Generation Z, young Christians in our culture, these are the Christian kids, they spend 3,000 hours a year doing digital media. 3,000 hours and only 200 of those 3,000 hours are dedicated to looking at things that are Christian in orientation. Now, that's, a, that's an amazing contract. That's one out of 20 hours. One in 20 hours. Young people in our culture, Christian kids, are looking at Christian versus whatever else they're looking at. That's not a good ratio. And so we need rest from the information. Let me put this last statement up and see if you agree. We need rest from the deluge of information in order to discern what information is important, how we should respond. So rest from our hurts, rest from our labors, rest from the pace, rest from the change, rest from the job, rest from information. That's all pretty practical stuff right there. And I want you to think about it. Now in this last, uh, last minute or two, I just want to reflect with you and give you some thoughts about Sabbath that maybe will remind you of its importance and ways that you can engage it. So would you bow your heads with me and just think with me for a moment?
hear these words. As I mentioned, for me, the first day of summer vacation is the definition of rest for me. But we all have our special times of stopping. And of course, the definition changes as we age and we go through different seasons of life. But rest is stopping one's work, whatever that work may be. Rest is freedom from harassment. It is the quiet after the storm. It is children fresh out of a bath with pruned fingers, the smell of baby shampoo tucked under their blankets before bedtime. Rest is the sound of the summer night breeze rustling the leaves just outside your bedroom window. Rest is putting your head down on the pillow, knowing that you can sleep. Rest is walking around the edge of a shorn cornfield in the fall. Rest is reading and setting the book aside when your eyes get too heavy. Rest is stopping. It's staring up through a cloudless night into the starry spine of our galaxy. Rest is thinking about all the things that you could do on a Sunday afternoon and hearing a still, small voice tell you just to stop and then taking a God-ordained nap. Musicians say that it is not the notes, but the pauses between the notes that make music. So to add meaning to our lives, God gave us the punctuation mark of the Sabbath. So Jesus calls out. He calls out to us in this 24-7 world, constant change, constant information, constant pressure. And he says, let me teach you because I am humble and gentle in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. So God, help us to remember the Sabbath day in order to keep it holy. In Jesus' name. Now, if you'll just remain seated for this closing song and then we'll receive the benediction.